Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. My guest today is one of the most accomplished singer-songwriters in the history of popular music. He has a brand new memoir entitled Stories to Tell, coming out on July 6th, and he is someone whose work I have admired and learned from for many, many years. He doesn't need an introduction because his name speaks for itself, but whenever I have personally been asked what my favorite song of all time is, it takes me less than a second to say Now and Forever by the ever-so-talented Richard Marks. Richard, thank you so much for being on wow. the show. Wow, Melinda, thank you so much. What a great compliment. Of course. Very Seriously. Cool. And it's so funny. My husband's not a singer at all. He's a lawyer. But yeah. I really wanted him to sing Now and Forever to me at our wedding. He was like, it's not going to happen. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, because over the years, um, even before Now and Forever, but particularly from Now and Forever on, I've written a couple of songs that get used at weddings a lot. I wrote a song yeah. for you sing called This I Promise You, which yeah, is a yeah. wedding song and now and forever. And so now um, I've taken to whenever I'm out on the road or in public and somebody comes up to me and says, oh, this is so great to meet you. We used your song at our wedding. I've, I, start, I started going, should have known better. <laughs> <laughs> Just throw them off a little bit. <laughs> Be a dick. Just <laughs> that's who oh, I am. I love I love that. And you know, I didn't know that you were from Chicago. Were you raised there or just born there? I was born in the city of Chicago and raised in a suburb, a northern suburb. So when it came to your musical influences growing up, how much did the city of Chicago play a role in your interest? Um, you know, my influences were not influenced by geography. Mm -hmm. So I, I wasn't sort of like, because I'm from Chicago, I was really into Chicago blues or it wasn't any of that. I was, mm -hmm. I was influenced by the music of past, present and past and present. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate in that both my parents were, they weren't in the record business, but they were in the music business in that my dad was a jingle composer and producer and arranger. And my mom sang on these commercials. So he was a really successful jingle writer producer in the 60s and 70s and even into the early 80s. Um, and partly because of his business and, you know, the jingle business, especially in its heyday, mm -hmm. needed to somewhat mimic what was happening in music. Both my parents were just totally into whatever was popular. I mean, they certainly loved their music of their day and everything, mm -hmm. but... You know, while my friends' parents were only listening to classical music or jazz, my parents were listening to the Doobie Brothers and the Eagles and Donny Hathaway. And, you know, they turned me on to all the music that I loved and, um, and, and do to this day. So what came for you first in terms of wanting to get into the music industry? Did you want to be an artist first or was it always songwriting that was your main passion? No, when I was a little kid, I just wanted to be a rock star. I wanted <laughs> I to, it. you know, it was like I... I and for all the dumb reasons, you know, it wasn't, I was too young to understand how seriously I would take it all, yeah. you know, later on. But when I was a kid, I was kind of shy and a little awkward with girls. And, but I had these huge crushes on girls in my class. And, and I, I think I was always somewhat of a romantic in that I never went through a girls or icky stage. Yeah. And when I was a little kid, I would see Elvis movies and I would, you know, it was like every plot was the same, which was 
Elvis likes this girl. This girl's not interested in Elvis, but then Elvis sings a song for her and she falls madly in love with Elvis. They never, ever commented on the fact that Elvis Presley was the most handsome man who ever lived. <laughs> um, and so it sort of made me think, oh, well, maybe if I sing songs, you know, it'll help me with it. And of course it did a little bit. Um, so it, yeah, the, the first thoughts were to be a, a singer. Mm-hmm. Then when I was about 13 or 14, I started to really have the desire to create my own songs. And, and it really started with, um, I think it started even slightly before that. I remember my, my dad played me a Paul Simon album called Still Crazy After All These Years. And it came out when I was 12 or 13. And I still distinctly remember that being the 44 minutes or whatever, however long the album is that defined me wanting to become a songwriter. Oh, I love that. Because I was, I mean, I loved his, I loved Paul's voice and, and I loved the harmonies uh, prior to of Simon and Garfunkel. But when I was listening to the construction of those songs and it just sort of planted the seed. Um, mm-hmm. That along with being, um, other than Elvis, when I was a kid, the only other person I was sort of obsessed with was Sam Cooke. And when I became aware that, unlike Elvis, Sam wrote all of his songs, and he wrote songs for other people, there was something so cool about knowing that, that that was a huge influence, too. I love that. Yeah, Sam Cooke is definitely one of my favorites and what I listened to growing up, because my dad was a musician as well, and he yeah. really influenced me wanting to be a singer and be a piano player and getting into music as well. So Sam Cooke, Ray Charles, Stevie Wonder, like that's all that was playing in my house when I grew up, all the greats, yeah. all the classics, yeah, yeah. right? Maybe to this day, Sam Cooke is my favorite singer of all time. Yeah. You know, mentioning even all of those people, I feel like, and you fall into this, Diane Warren, for example, Stevie Wonder, there's something about the air of those songwriters, that that music still feels very timeless. And I'm curious, just from your vantage point of being in the music industry for so long, if you think there are any songwriters or artists that have the potential to get that stamp as well, that will be revered in like 20 or 30 years as being timeless? Or do you think that we've kind of not really fallen into that with current music? And maybe I just don't listen to enough current music because I'm really stuck in like a lot of older stuff. That's just, I have an old soul and that's the music I listen to. But I personally feel like I haven't heard anything that has that timeless feel. Yeah. Well, the short answer, in my opinion, is Bruno Mars, who first comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that everyone will still be singing Bruno Mars songs in 10, 20 years. Um, I think, Melinda, that it's less about are there artists who are going to be, whose songs are going to be remembered down the road? I think it's less about that and it's more about the industry of music, the business of music has morphed into something that sort of just is more transient than it's ever been, more disposable than it's ever been. And I could sit here for two, we could, I could talk to you for two hours about this, but I really think it's a combination of we are in an age of technology where it's almost like we're conditioned to be ADD. Mm, Um, There's so much information coming at us left and right. And it doesn't really even matter how old you are. Um, I think younger people who didn't have to adapt to it, it was always part of their lives. They just, that's just business as usual for them. For someone like me who you know, when I was a kid, it was 
listening to vinyl albums and reading the liner notes and wanting to know who played on, who played drums on that track and yeah. who wrote that song and who produced and arranged that song. Um, and listening to music without doing anything else. So I spent most of my formative years and well into my thirties, probably listening to me where listening to music was a very important time. Mm -hmm. So I was never distracted by something else. I was focused solely on the task, not the task, but the joy of listening to whatever, you know, music I was listening to. And probably the full album. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah. Because find, that's when you'd find, you know, you could buy an album because you loved the song you heard on the radio, but you know, if it's a great artist, you're going to find all these other songs on the album that you go, wow, I like that. Those songs even better, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, even I've succumbed to it a little bit in that I can't remember the last time I, I listened to an album from beginning to end without checking my email or yeah. answering a text or going to Instagram. Cause, cause it's so easy to multitask all those things. For sure. What happens is that none of them get your undivided attention, especially the music. I think, I think when you talk about the disposability of music right now, I think it's just sort of the way the industry has become constructed in itself. Yeah. Yeah. But I could, you know, Bruno Mars for sure. Um, I, I think that, uh, I think that maybe Halsey might have like a really long career as a songwriter. Mm. Um, and then there are all these artists who, who are really sort of under the radar who aren't well known. Yeah. yeah. Who I think are just doing brilliant work. And so it's, it's hard to say. Yeah. You also, on your last album, you co-wrote with one of my other favorite songwriters, Sarah Bareilles. I think she's yeah. unbelievably talented and I love she's the work that she's. And what I've always found interesting about her albums, because I actually do still listen to full albums. I'm probably one of the rare people that do, but mm -hmm. she always does have a very, one very commercially pop song and the rest is kind of, it's almost kind of eclectic, her albums. And I appreciate that because I just love all types of music. And I think that's something that's really cool that she does. I also love NDRE and Gavin DeGraw. Those are my top three for sure. Yeah. I was a sort of casual Gavin DeGraw fan. Mm -hmm. I liked a couple of the songs on the radio. And then about six or seven years ago, he did a tour, a co-headline tour with my friend Matt Nathanson. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when they played the Greek, I went really to just cheer on Matt Nathanson. I actually yeah. got up and did a song with him at that show at the Greek. But I also stayed and watched Gavin's set. And I left a massive Gavin DeGraw fan. I, I, I haven't heard anyone sing live that well and entertain in that way in a long time. Yeah. He's, like, he's, he's a really, he's really talented guy. Yeah. I was at that concert and I remember you performing with Matt. Oh, wow. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Kissed me on the cheek that night, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> in front of everyone. I love that. So was there a moment or specific instance in your career where you really felt affirmed that, Hey, I am a good songwriter. Um, that's a good question. Yeah. I think that, I think all it went, not in a cocky way, in a healthy way, in a confident way. Yeah. I think, I think that the moment that the moment, the moment you're describing for me actually coincided with the greatest advice I ever got from anyone. And it happened to be from my father. I was 
I'd been writing songs for a couple of years. I, I moved out to LA to try to pursue my career. And, and about six or eight months into my living in LA, I got writer's block, which is something I'd heard about from, you know, forever. And everybody mm -hmm. knows about it. Mm -hmm. And so I called my dad thinking he would coddle me and give me some like really, chin, you know, keep your chin up and, you know, be so sympathetic. And the first thing he said to me was, wow, you're so full of shit. <laughs> And I went, what? And he went, dude, there's no, look, what is it that you decided you wanted to do with your life? And I went, write songs. He goes, well, then write songs. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he explained to me, he said, you've reached a point already where you know that you cannot write a bad song. You can't write a piece of crap. Yeah. It's just not possible. You've, you've learned too much and you've done it too much. Now, you might write a song that you don't like nearly as much as the other ones. You might write a song that no one wants to record or it doesn't find the home or you don't, whatever. But you can't, you're not going to be able to say that it's a bad song. Right. You're incapable right. of writing trash at this point. And then the second piece of advice was you have to write something if you're going to be a writer, you have to write something. And, and you might write garbage, right? But I guarantee you that somewhere in that stuff you think is garbage, you're going to find whether it's two lines of melody or a couple of words, and you're going to go, oh, well, that's actually not bad. I can build on that. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you're back. Right. And I swear, Melinda, I've never had a writer's block since. And that, and that was when I was 18 years old. That's amazing. That's great yeah. advice. And, I, yeah, I think that's true just in any kind of artistic form, like just go do the thing that you know you're supposed to do and it will come. Absolutely. The content will come. And I've, I've had those moments as well, you know, just doing songwriting and performing or feeling, especially in the pandemic, I will say that's the time when I, I sat down at the piano and I was like, okay, let's just do this, you know, yeah. feeling like I'm not going to get to perform anytime soon, but that's fine. Like, let's, let's just get the material flowing. So I think that's right. incredible advice. Good for you. Yeah. And so I know your son is also a songwriter. Was there ever a moment for you where you maybe didn't want him to be in the music industry? <laughs> there have been nothing but moments. <laughs> <laughs> all three of them. It's not just one. I have three sons. So they're all three in the music I industry. I have three children, all boys, and they're all musician, singer, oh songwriter. <laughs> not one freaking doctor. Not one app designer. And I just... Yeah, and I mean the truth is that as their talent was evident from the time they were very little, and I encouraged it because it's the family business and because they were good at it. Yeah, um, I sort of led them down a path. I I recorded them in in our in, in my home studio. Um, they immediately naturally gravitated towards singing harmonies with each other, which is a there's something very unique and special about sibling harmony, um, you know, whether it's yeah. Bee Gees or, you know, the Everly Brothers or um, the Jonas Brothers. The, yeah, there's yeah, something yeah. so special about sibling harmony. And they, the way my sons sing together is just magical. But they all kept at it. They all really wanted to be in the music business in some way, shape or form. They all went through their period of wanting to be stars. Mm -hmm. um, but they didn't, they also didn't, and they'll be the first to agree that they didn't necessarily have the same kind of drive that I had when I was young, um, partly because of just the way they grew up. You know, they grew up way more privileged than yeah. 
I did. And, and, and it's just sort of, I think it's generational. And, um, but my middle son, Lucas, of the three of them has really remained laser beam focused on his career and has put in the work and just has developed his talent in a way that he's just so consistently great. And I kept saying to him, it's just a matter of time, man. It's just you're one song away from things changing. And then he ended up co-writing this new Katy Perry single, yeah. uh, Electric. And watching that and seeing, like he sent me a new song two days ago that he wrote with a friend of his. And he sent it, he texted it to me. My wife Daisy and I were driving and I just played it in the car. And by the second chorus, Daisy was singing along with the lyrics. That's it, that, it was that immediately commercial and, and memorable and great. So he's, his talent and his progression of his talent is, is um, really inspiring to me and impressive mm -hmm. to me. Do you pass along the advice that you got from your father to your sons in terms of songwriting? Um, I, the, none of them have really needed that particular advice because they, I think maybe along the way I, they'd heard me tell that story and so they just sort of know it. Mm. But yeah, what I like is that once in a while they um, will send me something and, and ask me to pick it apart, you know, or they'll say, I feel like this is really great, but it's missing something. What do you, you know, and I love that they feel comfortable. Yeah. And they also know that at the end of the day, it's just my opinion. It's not, my opinion is no more valuable than theirs. It's just my opinion. And um, once in a while, it's, it's very gratifying when I say, hey, what if, what if that actually was the verse? And you wrote a different, and when they go, oh, great idea, that makes me feel really good as a dad, you know? Yeah, that's great. They value your opinion in that way. I love yeah. that. Yeah. So I know you talked about some of the negative changes of the music industry, just where we are, but are there anything positive that you've seen happen over the last, you know, 20, 30 years of your career that you're like, you know, I'm actually glad the music industry has gone in this way? No. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, I love that answer. It's so honest. <laughs> I can't think of anything that I think is better. Um, yeah. Look, it's it's. I, I, the only thing I would say is that the idea that artists of any kind, musically, no longer require a record deal, mm. um, a promotion team, it depends on what their level of success, their, what, what level desire of success they want. If they, if they just really want to be able to create their music and have a following of whatever number and it's immediate access, they write up, yeah. you know, they write up, they come up with an, like an EP of new material. Mm -hmm. They know that their Instagram followers are going to at least stream it, if not buy it. There's something really lovely about the fact that there are so many artists putting out their work without any restrictions. Yeah. The negative part of it is there's so much of it yeah. that it's easier to get lost in the shuffle maybe than ever. For sure. Um, but no, I mean, I, 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 I'm sorry to sound cynical. I just, I, I think everything from, it's like the, every aspect of the music business to me is good news and bad news now. Yeah. yeah, the good news is you can literally have almost every piece of music in existence on your phone. Yeah. The bad news is 
you can have every piece of music in existence on your phone. It's become less important. It's become less um, special. Mm-hmm. You know, music yeah. for people now is sort of like just this afterthought. They don't even have to, you know, put like put the record on the turntable and make and like make the effort to sit and listen to music. It's yeah. become so easy that I think it's really become less and less important to people. And that's a problem. Sure. And, you know, it's interesting you say that because a lot of my like indie artist friends throughout the pandemic, they did a lot of live streaming, right? Because we couldn't go perform. And my concern actually with that was that the value of music was going to be less than it already was because at that point they're giving it away for free but it's because as artists you have to release creatively somehow right so did do you feel like coming out of this pandemic you're going to see more people go see live music or do you think that they're going to realize they don't actually want to invest the money in going to see it oh that's a good question i hope it's not the latter i don't think it's that um i hope not either but just know that knowing that like Oh, they they're, if they're, they could live stream it, you know, I can watch it from home. I'm just curious if people are just going to have that attitude continuously, you know? I doubt it because I think that the live streaming thing for, from an audience standpoint was just sort of like a, a Band-Aid. It was sort of like a, you know, like a, I guess if this is all I can do, you know, if this is the, you know, the best we got right now. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll do this. But I think that everyone, at least my the input I got from audiences when I did my couple of live streams was, yeah, we'll support you. And, you know, or they loved it, but we can't wait to see you in person again. Cause there is something, there's something unique about that experience, that, that communal, it's, it's, it's a love affair. It's a two hour love affair yeah. that you can't replicate through zoom or a live stream event. Yeah. And, um, I know that, the art, my artist friends and myself, we are all, we all feel the same way. It's like we, we've done some live streams because it's just the only thing we are capable of doing right now. Mm-hmm. But it's not rewarding for us in, in any of the same way. Yeah. Well, you also energy in performance, it it's fueled by the audience reaction. So like when you're singing and then there's nothing after you finish singing, it just, you feel dead almost, you yeah. know? Yeah. And also, you know, someone like me who the show is really what happens in between the songs where I talk and kid around and I, I banter with the audience like that. That's, that's really the magical part of live performance for me. And that's been taken away from us for over a year. Yeah. And you released your album limitless right before the pandemic. Yeah. Basically locked us all up. Right. But it was your first album in six years. Yeah, it was. Didn't seem that long, but you're right. I'm sure it didn't. But how do you feel that you had kind of changed as an artist during that time? Um, well, the first thing that I noticed was my not just willingness, but eagerness to collaborate with different people. Hmm. Um, my my his, historically, I've written the majority of my albums by myself. I've always co- collaborated a little bit here and there on my albums, on my, on my artist album. But the bulk of this, my recorded work is music and lyrics by me, and I mm-hmm. produced the records. Mm-hmm. With Limitless, I felt like I wanted a whole new kind of influence and input from people, and everyone from my, own, from my son, Lucas, who, who did three tracks with me, um, to 
Um, this guy, Michael Jade, who I know through my sons, actually, and I'm a big fan of his work, and we, we wrote the title track together and, and produced it together. Um, I think I was just sort of way more open to other collaborators. I think yeah. it's important to do. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I definitely envision a time when I'll probably do this intimate record again where it's just me and I do everything myself and maybe even play all the instruments. I've always, I've always thought that that might be an interesting exercise for me, but yeah. I don't know when that will happen. And I, and I feel more invigorated as an artist these days because I'm collaborating with more people and I'm constantly listening to new music and welcoming influences more than ever before. How have you managed to still keep the sound that is uniquely Richard Marx, but also move forward with how music is changing? Because even listening to the album, it feels still very modern and current, but it yeah. still sounds very Richard Marx. Well, that's know? the best compliment you could give me. And, <laughs> uh, and I think that um, part of it's just, I won't call it luck because, you know, one of the things I hear and I experience with artists who I love is as they get older, they don't sound the same. It's a little like, oh God, you know, it's, it's not the same anymore. And because I'm because I've been constantly touring for years, it's kept my voice number one in shape. Yeah. But also just sort of maintained the same sound. I had to not had to, but I chose to re-record um, all my hits about five years ago, four years ago, uh, just for business reasons. I wanted to own my own masters. Masters, yeah, for sure. And because I produced those records originally, it was easy for me to go in and replicate them. And it was actually kind of, I was dreading it. And then it was fun to like try to copy everything as close to the original as I could sonically. But when it came to time to singing them, it was kind of cool because I would play them for people and say, okay, which one's the original and which one's the, the new one? And they couldn't tell. I love that. <laughs> that's, that's a good thing. Um, yeah. But I also think that it's, important for me at least when I, if I'm going to make an album I don't want anyone sitting there listening to it and going yeah this sounds like his old albums because to me that's not a plus right but what if, if the reaction is kind of what you said which is wow this sounds new and modern and fresh but it's still him that's the goal to me yeah I love that yeah I really enjoyed listening to it and I didn't get to make your last live stream I'm hoping when you do another one I'll be able to tune in but I've thoroughly enjoyed every song and it still felt so classic Richard Marks yeah, 2020, awesome. which, which is great. So we're not going to end this conversation without talking about Richard Marks on Twitter because <laughs> uh -oh. dun, dun, dun. as someone who is such a like prolific love song writer, I find your personality on Twitter one to be hilarious, but that's also how we connected. But what I find and you know, people always say, don't read the comments, but who doesn't read the comments? Let's be honest. You know, people have this mindset and this perspective, specifically with celebrities and public figures, when it comes to talking about politics and their views, that you shouldn't do that. And have you always been so vocal about how you feel about things, or was it a recent thing? One, that's the first part of the question. And second, how do you respond to those people that say, oh, you know, Richard, just shut up and sing or shut up and write songs? Um, well, I've always been, I, I haven't been terribly political up until maybe 20 years ago. Um, 
in fact, I voted for members of both parties. Uh, I've always and continue to technically be an independent. I'm a registered independent. <clears throat> I don't identify as a Democrat. Um, I only identify more as a Democrat in the last five years. Um, and more and more so. Like I, I, I voted for Obama, but I also was critical of some of Obama's presidency. Um, I thought Bill Clinton was actually a really great president for this country, but I don't have anything. I can't give him any props from what I know as a human being. I mean, right. seems like, you know, terribly flawed and maybe, you know, gross in some way. Right? <laughs> right. Um, whereas I was mortified by the, by the George W. Bush presidency, but also never felt that he was an evil person or um, a traitorous person or just a dumbass and, and also very misleading and, and, and just dumb in, in a dangerous way in that taking information from people who did have an agenda mm. put us in a war that was just reprehensible. Um, that's when it really started to get, I started to get passionate about it. It was also, it also coincided, I think, Melinda, with conversations and disagreements with people politically taking a whole turn because of Fox News and because of this, this constant uh, perpetuate perpetual falsehoods being, you know, false narratives, outright lies being perpetuated. Um, I couldn't, I found myself like wanting to just be like, who cares? It's just politics. And I just couldn't because yeah. the, the line between politics and human rights and basic decency has become very blurred. You know, it's like, I, I can't, I, I've never seen a political party like the current GOP. Yeah. You know, and, terrifying, and, and the Trump presidency and, and, the, and the people who really do worship him in, yeah. in a cult-like way. And so it's just, and it also, again, it coincided with social media being available and me having something to say about it. Um, you know, you follow me, so you know that I've never um, gone, out, gone after anyone other than a, an elected official. I'll go after them all day long because they yeah. work for me. Right. Right. You know, they're my employees. Yep. They're your employees. Mm -hmm. So I have no problem, you know, like blasting somebody on their Twitter feed who is a right. an elected official. While I've never gone after just a normal Twitter person, I also will respond. You know, um, just like if somebody came up to me in the street and insulted me, I'm not going to just keep walking. I'm going to turn around and go, what'd you say? Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As for the second part of your question, I think it's a really, it, it's a hot topic. It just sort of kind of boggles my mind that pe so many people feel that they can tell a person who just happens to be in the entertainment business that their opinion doesn't matter or is less than theirs. Yeah. Shut up and sing or Laura Ingram saying, shut up and dribble. Yeah. Um, to be so arrogant to think that your First Amendment right is greater than mine, that's a, that's, those are the words of a traitor. That's a, those are the words of someone who's un-American. Yep. Um, 
So I, you know, it's also, but the humorous part of it is if you look at the accounts of these people who tag me and say, shut up and sing, nobody cares about celebrities' opinions. And then you look at who they follow and they follow Scott Baio and Ted Nugent and John Voight and, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like <laughs> so you it's care like, about their opinion because they agree laughable. with you. <laughs> it's really laughable. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I find it offensive, you know? Like I would never tell a plumber to shut up about his opinion about anything but plumbing. What an arrogant thing to say to someone. It's extremely arrogant, but it's also the 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 thought that you're you all of a sudden are not just a normal US citizen that has the same rights as everybody else just because you've ascended to a different level in your career and your life. It makes no sense. I've always tried to understand that, but I, there's nobody has an answer for me. <laughs> to I've, told, I, I've told a few people, um, I'll tell you what, when you start paying my tax bill, then you can tell me to, that my opinion doesn't matter or whether I'm not as American. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I pay my taxes. I'm an American citizen and I have the right to my opinion and my right to voice it just as much as you do. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. Like, there's so, if I went through people's Twitter feeds all day long, I would just, I could find things that, I'm, that piss me off all day long. I just choose not to. I don't care. I don't care what you say in your Twitter feed as long as you're not talking to me. Right, exactly. Do you think as a culture we have become too sensitive or do you think that the things that people are calling people out are, it's warranted? I, I think that there is a fine line, but I just want to know your opinion because mm -hmm. we have gotten to this whole cancel culture aspect mm -hmm. of things. And I do think that there are some unforgivable offenses, like your recent Twitter conversation with Omar Navarro, like the things that you're calling him out on like he probably deserves to be canceled because of those things, you know, yeah. but there are certain things that I think we don't have a level of grace for, but I'm just curious your thoughts on that. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a fine line. I think that, um, in certain ways, I think cancel culture has just become one of those many things that it's, it's a bandwagon that everybody wants to jump on and that everyone wants to put everyone in the same box, no matter what you've, what you've said or done. And, and so therefore when people are, egregious in their vile rhetoric, like Navarro, who's like, it's, it's just bigoted, it's homophobic and it's disgusting. It almost like, it, it almost minimizes it a little bit because there's so much cancel culture. Like, you know, and, and an example is what happened to me a week ago, whatever. I made a joke, a quip about buying a drink for the Rand Paul's ex neighbor. Well, look, here's, here's what I say about that. And, and for those of you who are listening to us who don't know what happened after that, I got attacked like I've never been attacked on social media. I had Rand Paul himself go on Fox News and say with no pushback that my tweet was the reason he got a suspicious package of powder the next day. And I was encouraging violence against him and his family, outright lies. These people who attacked me the most, I, you know, if I had the opportunity face-to-face, -face, I would say, so tell me something. In your life, have you ever heard about somebody that you think's a real asshole getting his ass, getting his ass handed to him and said, you kind of asked for it. You right. kind of had it coming. That's all that was. Right. That's all my comment was. Because I'm now part of that whole twisted rhetoric of cancel culture and outrageous rhetoric 
people like Omar Navarro, who are outright bigots and homophobes, it's sort of like it all just gets melded together. It's all just white noise, yeah. and it shouldn't be. Yeah. The, the people who should be called out are the people who are really saying vicious, vile, horrible things, like like Mike Flynn. Right. And I think the problem that people don't realize, the ones that attack you but don't attack those people, is that they're probably very much so like those people that they should be calling out. So they're yeah. not going to, to call out somebody that their actual behavior you know, reflects. That's what it is. Yeah. And the other difference, Melinda, is unlike all these people that I have to like endure and run across on social media, and I'm not just saying this, it's... If you go through my Twitter feed, it's public record. Mm -hmm. I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican or what ethnicity you are. If you say something publicly that's homophobic or bigoted or racist, I'm going to have something to say back. Right. I, I don't pick and choose. It's not like, oh, well, I'm not going to comment because uh, that person that said that is a Democrat or that person that, you know, is, or is a friend of mine or... No, it's like all bets are off when it comes to those things. I think you're very consistent, and that's what I appreciate. I try to be. Yeah. I try to be legitimate. I try, I try to avoid any hypocrisy that I can because it's one of, it's one of my pet peeves, for yeah. sure. Well, let's talk about your new book that's coming out, Stories to Tell. Why did you think now was the right time to write this memoir and release it? Well, it wasn't, a, it wasn't this time. It's been happening off and on for years. I've been mm -hmm. sort of picking at it and, and piecing it together. It really began um, as a function of my doing solo acoustic shows, which I started about 10 or 11 years ago, I think. Um, that way of touring, I, was, I always still did band shows, but I started really diving into the solo acoustic um, troubadour kind of thing. Yeah. Mainly out of fear, because I was so afraid of it I'd done plenty of it. Like I would go to a charity event and do three or four songs, solo acoustic, no problem. But to carry a whole show of that was something that really scared the shit out of me. Mm. And I tend to sort of go towards things that frighten me because I think it makes you a better person. I think Absolutely. it's, you know, uh, and so I dove into it immediately found that instead of fearing it, I was just loving it. But it meant that I was less concerned about the musicianship part of it and way more concerned with, I wanted people to leave the, my shows feeling like they knew me a little bit, that they hung out with me. Yeah. I don't think that there's much of a divide between me offstage and onstage. Um, and so, you know, when I started doing these solo acoustic shows, it was like, okay, I need a piano and I need a guitar. And I need stories. And luckily, I've had a long career. I've had some crazy shit happen to yeah. me. And most of it's really funny. And a lot of it's actually self, very self-deprecating. Um, and so those stories went over, started to go over so well that I just started getting people saying, you should write them. you know. And, and then translating them into, into print is always challenging because so many of them do have punchlines and they're, it's like reading a joke versus somebody telling you a joke. Right. You know? It started out really as, a, as, as me writing the, the life story behind a lot of my famous songs, mm -hmm. much less about me, the person. But then 
about a year and a half ago, Simon and Schuster read some of what I'd done and signed up and they wanted to, to publish the book. And then it became a little bit more of like, why aren't you writing more about you and your life? And, and I've always been a very private person mm-hmm. and it was just, I had to do it at my own pace and my own time. And, and ultimately it was a really interesting therapeutic learning process. And, um, I hope people like the book. I really enjoyed writing it. So from your perspective, is there a song of yours that you actually think is the most underrated? Because, you know, you have the hits and those are the ones that people obviously know you uh, from. But if they buy your albums, they'll probably know some of the the lesser known songs. But is there a song that you think, you know, this is actually my favorite song and a lot of people may not even know this one? I don't know that I could ever narrow it down to a favorite because if those are, you know, that's impossible. For sure, um, for sure. Yeah, there are, the first one that comes to mind, and it's not the only one, there are, there are several. In fact, I tend to like the songs on every album that weren't the biggest hits. There weren't the singles, yeah. I mean, I, I love, I, I, I'm very proud of it. I, there's no song that I've recorded that I go, oh, God, you know, <laughs> maybe there are other people who go that way, but not me. <laughs> right, um, right. There's a song called, on, on a, a really, it was really the first album I put out that tanked. It was, a, it was an independent record in 2000. I did an album called Days in Avalon. And I wrote this song called Shine. And it was, um, I still don't really even understand the song myself. I think it's a really, I'm really proud of the, the music, the melody. Um, but when I wrote the lyrics, they were a little abstract. Um, they were partly inspired by a, a little independent film I'd seen about an old man who was just miserable in his life and was contemplating killing himself and just putting himself out of his misery. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little character, a slightly character driven lyric that I wrote. And was just something about it that still moves me when I hear it. No one knows that song unless my diehard fans who bought that album. Um, and then a few years later, uh, there was a song I wrote called Through My Veins, which was never a single, but it w- it became a staple of my show. I actually write about this song in my book. Um, and it was really uh, about me grieving the loss of my father about seven years before. It took me a long time to really come to any kind of uh, terms with it, with, with him, his absence, because we were so close. And so I wrote this song called Through My Veins, and... And I was, it was so personal to me. And so what I, I would put it in the show and every single time I would play it live, I'd get a standing ovation mm. and I would see people crying or I got a lot of not letters, but, you know, um, online comments about it or people stopping me somewhere and, you know, and I'm expecting them to say, oh, I love Angelia or I love right here waiting. And they go, man, thank you for writing through my veins. It really helped mm. me through losing my mom or, um, so that one's like a really, really important song in my songwriting life. So when people finish your book, what is the one thing you want them to feel that they know about you? Um, that I'm taller than they think. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm normal. I don't know why everybody thinks I'm this like really little guy. I'm 5'10". I'm like a normal size. No, yeah, my husband's 5'10". Can't play <laughs> but, you know, I'm not a little man. I just, is that I, what they really think? Oh yeah, I get that all the time. I get, and somewhere somewhere along the way, um, Google 
put my head up for you. And I was like, who measured me? Because, um, no, the answer to your question is I want people to come away reading the book, if nothing else, understanding the truth of how grateful I am. Because mm. that is really what it's about for me, is gratitude. And it wasn't always that way, because when you're young, you don't take the time to sit around and be grateful. I was, sure. I was grateful on paper. I would profess my gratitude. I knew that I was living my dream and that I was happy. But I was also so caught up in my own insecurities and, and my own sense of like doing more and bigger and more albums and more shows and feeling more competitive and, and the gratitude, gratitude gets lost in that storm. So when things are calmer as you get older and you, and you're able to process your life in a different way, you're lucky if gratitude rises to the top and And Daisy and I talk about it all the time. We've both been incredibly fortunate, um, but we're both incredibly grateful people. Yeah. And I think so often when you be, the more successful you become, it is harder to take that time to look back and appreciate how far you've come. So I love that that's where you and Daisy have landed in both of your careers at this point. So thank you for sharing that. But Richard, thank you so much for coming to be on the show. I loved chatting with you. It was such a pleasure. Of course. And everyone make sure you pre-order his book, Stories to Tell, that comes out on July 6th and follow him on Twitter because (laughs) you are guaranteed a good time thank you again Richard and listeners make sure you subscribe to We Need to Talk and we'll talk to you again soon bye